Well, uh, as you say, um, tomorrow is 100 years, and uh, um, it was a somewhat weary at last uh, that was very much the attitude of um, those who'd been involved in the long and at times desperately bitter campaign um, to uh, achieve the vote. And uh, that at last caption um, was uh, to a cartoon that was um, published in the 23rd of January 1918 issue of Punch. And it uh, was then used by Millicent Fawcett, who was the leader of the constitutional campaign, as a frontispiece to her book, The Woman's Victory, and, uh, which was published in 1920. The image shows a Joan of Arc figure, and you see her eyes cast heavenward, and she's holding a staff um, from which floats the banner of women's franchise. As a symbol, the maiden warrior had been actively associated with the campaign during the previous 10 years or so, as the suffrage campaign took a decidedly militant turn. And then... Uh, during the war, as the suffrage societies put their organisations at the service um, of the war effort. Um, and then in an earlier work, which was called um, Five Famous French Women, which was published in 1905, Millicent Fawcett had chosen Joan of Arc as the first of her heroines. And while praising her military skill, lauded her political astuteness. And now uh, it was a combination of these attributes um, which uh, were demonstrated over many years by a very eclectic legion of women and men that had, at last, brought women, or at least some women, the parliamentary vote. For by 1918, women had been campaigning for the vote for over 50 years, and during that time, the campaign had been continually evolving, responding to changes um, in the nature of both politics and society. Uh, the popular narrative... Uh, nowadays is dominated by the militancy of the 20th century suffragettes. But it's important to realise that this is by no means the whole story. And now I'm going to tell you the whole story. <laughs> uh, for to get a proper perspective on that at last cartoon, we have to begin in the mid-19th century, when the majority of the when to the majority of the population, the idea of a woman voting was considered ridiculous. Uh, voters were men, just as vicars, lawyers, soldiers, sailors were men. However, in 1866, a new reform bill was under discussion because the middle-class men who'd been making uh, Britain great um, were not prepared to be excluded any longer from having a say in the way the country was governed. And taking advantage of the ensuing political discussion, a small group of women determined to do what they could to lobby for women to be included in the bill. If a woman fulfilled the property qualification that allowed a man a vote, why should she not also be a voter? The group included those who were already seeking uh, ways to improve all aspects of women's social, economic and educational position. They were beginning to recognise that while they were unable to influence the shaping of uh, the relevant legislation, they would be unable to determine how women's lives were lived. The result was that, as one of the members mentioned in a November 1865 letter, some people are inclined to begin a subdued kind of agitation for the franchise. The group had a champion in the philosopher John Stuart Mill, whom they, had whom they had supported when he stood as an MP for Westminster the previous year. 
and uh, who the following June, that is in June 1866, returned uh, the favour by presenting a petition to Parliament that was signed by rough, about 1,500 women, asking that the vote should be given to women on the same terms as it was given to men. The women who had organised the petition included 30-year-old Elizabeth Garrett, who a few months earlier had uh, managed to qualify as a doctor, the first woman in Britain to do so. She'd broken the barrier that construed a professional as a man, and in doing so, uh, she had uh, begun the work of eroding uh, the accepted concept of what a woman was and what a woman could do. And working with her was her close friend, Emily Davis, uh, who had encouraged her in her medical studies, and who, before the end of the decade, was to found Girton, uh, the first women's college in Cambridge. The entry of women into higher education and the founding of secondary schools to provide an academic education for girls uh, were also to be a means by which uh, public perception of what a woman could be and do would be slowly reshaped. On the day the suffrage petition was presented, the women who had organised it were euphoric. But all too soon, uh, the energy that enabled so many signatures to be gathered in such a short time seemed to ebb away. After months of discussion, uh, these London-based women finally agreed to form themselves into a provisional committee, whereas in early 1867, Manchester set up a rather more effective suffrage organisation with this lady, Lydia Becker, as its secretary. In July the somewhat feeble London Committee became the rather more dynamic-sounding London National Society for Women's Suffrage. And at this point, Emily Davis withdrew to concentrate her efforts on Girton, as Elizabeth Garrett had earlier bowed out to concentrate on opening up the medical profession to women. By November 1867, a nationwide suffrage campaign had been established, with societies founded in Bristol, Birmingham, Edinburgh, Dublin and Belfast. At this time, the purpose of the societies was to uh, present petitions to Parliament. This was seen as the correct way in which to exert pressure, but methods were to change over the years. Manchester held its first public meeting in 1868 with one of its leading uh, members, a woman called Agnes Pochon, um, speaking from the platform and doing so, uh, breaking through the invisible barrier that deemed it unwomanly uh, for women to promote their own cause in this way. I mean, women at that point just didn't speak on public platforms. The following year, the London National Society held its first public meeting addressed by Millicent Fawcett. She was Elizabeth Garrett's much younger sister, who in May 1867, a month after her marriage to Henry Fawcett, who was MP for Brighton, and... Uh, and she was still only 18, 19 years old at this time, she'd been present in the Ladies' Gallery in the House of Commons to witness the defeat of Mill's amendment to the Reform Bill. So they hadn't got any very far, but they had marshaled their forces. In the 1870s, uh, the divide between London and Manchester became not only geographical, but philosophical. Uh, Manchester was seen as the more radical society, for instance, many of the Manchester members were involved with Josephine Butler's campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Act, and uh, it was, uh, an, that was an association that um, John Stuart Mill, who dominated the London Society, thought could only harm the suffrage cause. 
for despite his intellectual contribution, uh, Mill was a repressive influence. Differences of opinion over how the campaign should be conducted were even found with a, within a family as central to the campaign as the Garretts. For in the early 1870s, while Millicent Garrett was a member of the Committee of the London National Society, her sister, Agnes Garrett, was joint secretary of the much more radical Central Committee, which had been founded to give the Manchester Society a London presence. And their cousin, Rhoda Garrett, was one of the Central Committee's most effective speakers, de delivering speeches not only in London, but around the country. And you see Rhoda here, and you'll notice that she's wearing her hair loose and she looks very uncorseted, so she was an advanced, advanced radical woman. In the years 1880 to 1884, that was in the lead-up to the next reform bill, um, they were a time of optimism. It was thought that by developing a populist movement, holding the mass meetings in London and in provincial cities, um, they would demonstrate that they were in earnest in their desire for the vote and that women would therefore convince Parliament uh, to include them in a new reform bill. Ah, but although the 1884 Reform Act um, extended the franchise uh, to many classes of men, including agricultural labourers, and this was something that particularly ired uh, the women in the suffrage movement, many of whom um, did own property and land, uh, but uh, so that although their employees might be enfranchised, uh, women were still totally excluded. Uh, suffrage campaigners did, didn't only have to contend with setbacks from without, but with dissension from within its own movement, because we must remember that the suffrage campaign can't ever be disso dissociated from the wider political scene. And in 1888, Politics played its part by splitting the main suffrage society, reflecting the divide in the Liberal Party over the Home Rule Bill. That's Home Rule for Ireland. Um, it was, of course, much more complicated, with a good deal of spin clouding the issue. But in essence, Millicent Fawcett and Lydia Becker and their followers sided with the Liberal Unionists, while the other more radical Liberals supported Gladstone and Home Rule. The two factions only came together in 1895 to six, so that was really sort of 10 years in the wilderness. Uh, so they only came together there in the uh, late 1890s when they buried their differences in order to work together in the support of yet another suffrage bill. It was this cooperation that paved the way for the formation in 1897 of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, um, which was under the leadership of Millicent Fawcett. With, many local, um, with the many local uh, suffrage societies that had been formed throughout the country, they federated under the NUWSS as a sort of umbrella organization. And in 1907, Millicent Fawcett was given the formal uh, title of president of the NUWSS. So by the turn of the 20th century, um, with many, many suffrage bills having been debated but none passed, the campaign had progressed from being not sure if they would even have a society, to being a familiar presence in all the major cities of, of the British Isles. On the, on the way, its side campaigns had ensured the passing of the Married Women's Property Acts, an act that allowed women to vote in local government elections and to stand for some elected uh, positions in local government. I mean, that was quite a breakthrough. 
up and down the country, women were now used to speaking at meetings and they spoke in cottages and drawing rooms and marketplaces and public halls, um, calling for their own emancipation. However, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a feeling that the suffrage campaign was languishing. For between 1897 and 1904, no suffrage bill had even been discussed in the House of Commons. As a result, in October 1903, the NUWSS uh, backed what was called a National Convention for the Civic Rights of Women, um, which um, decided to mount a very much more active campaign in the lead up to the next general election, which was due in early 1906. And it's worth noting that the date of that national convention, which was the 16th to 17th of October, 1903, for it was just six days earlier, on the 10th of October, that in Manchester, Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst called to her house a few members of uh, Manchester Independent Labour Party uh, and formed a new group, the Women's Social and Political Union. The timing may have been fortuitous. It's not known if she'd been invited to the national convention but, um, but although she'd been actively involved with the suffrage campaign since the 1870s, um, Emmeline Pankhurst was now sceptical of the ability of the NUWSS to campaign effectively. And uh, initially, there was some cooperation between uh, what we call the WSPU and the NUWSS, but the harmony didn't continue um, when the NUWSS realized um, that the increase in militancy of the WSPU was positively harming the cause. For the women of the WSPU had realized that by breaching the law, they could achieve more publicity than by lobbying in the conventional manner. They had no truck with petitions. Their first real success came in Manchester in October 1905, when Mrs. Uh, Pankhurst's eldest daughter, Christabel, uh, together with a uh, young woman, Annie Kenny, who'd uh, lately been working in the Lancashire mills, um, uh, were arrested and imprisoned after they'd heckled Sir Edward Grey, who was a, a liberal politician at a meeting in Manchester, and they were thrown out of the meeting, and Christabel was then said to have spattered a policeman and was arrested, um, as uh, Annie was on obstruction. They, um, they refused to pay their fine and went to prison for a week, and they got more publicity for the suffrage cause then than had ever been done for years before. Now, now well and truly launched, the WSPU moved from Manchester to London to concentrate their attention on the seat of power, quickly gathering members from all walks of life. Some women who had worked um, for the Constitutional Society saw the attraction of the more direct action taken by the WSPU and switched allegiance from the NUWSS. Once in London, the leaders were joined by uh, a wealthy philanthropic couple called Emmeline and Frederick Pethick Lawrence, who set them up in offices in Clements Inn, which is off the Strand, just next to the Courts of Justice. And from 1907, the Pethick Lawrences funded and edited a newspaper for the WSPU called Votes for Women. Although when launched, the WSPU was ostensibly a reasonably democratic organization, it quickly became clear this is not the modus operandi favored by the Pankhurst and Pethick Lawrences. A constitution uh, weighed down with rules, elected committees and uh, conferences would they thought be detrimental to the militant operation they were developing. 
there were also personal and ideological differences that led a group under the leadership of Mrs. Charlotte Despard to break away in the autumn of 1907 to form another organization called the Women's Freedom League. Although still thinking of itself as a militant organization, the WFL made clear that it didn't approve of attacks on persons or property and was still supportive of the Labour Party, which the leaders of the WSPU no longer were. The WFL was to be a constant presence, steering a middle way between the absolutes of militancy and non-militancy by instigating a programme of civil disobedience, such as picketing Parliament and organising a boycott of the 1911 census. In June uh, 1908, Emmeline Pethick Lawrence introduced the use of the colours purple, white and green to unify the marches in a WSPU procession that was going to make its way through the London streets. This proved to be a superb branding exercise. And I'm sure you all recognise the colours now. They're all going to be everywhere in the next uh, a few days as uh, everybody um, uh, celebrates the anniversary. Um, but the actual colours, these colours of purple, white and green, uh, were, I'm sure, chosen for their impact, but were later given a rather soulful gloss by Mrs. Pethick Lawrence, identifying white for purity, green for hope, and purple for dignity. The NUWSS quickly adopted their own colours, uh, which were red, white, and green. In their case, the, um, the gloss was that they were the colours of the Italian Risorgimento, a reflection of the influence that Garibaldi and Mazzini had had on early suffragists. The number of uh, suffrage societies was now increasing fast. Uh, the actresses, the musicians, the civil service, the conservatives, the Fabians, the Quakers, the Church of England, the nonconformists, the Catholics, the Jews, the gymnasts, uh, the Irish, women writers, the Welsh, London graduates, Scottish graduates, men, the New Constitutional Society, women teachers and women taxpayers all formed their separate societies. Each adopted its own colours and devices but it is the purple, white, and green of the WSPU that linger in popular memory. The WSPU and the new WSS separately and on occasion together organized uh, spectacular marches through London with supporters traveling on specially organized uh, trains from all around the country to take part in them. One of the most glamorous of the processions was held in the summer of 1911, uh, the time of the coronation of George V, and it was uh, all the streets were going to be decorated for the coronation, so that added to the gaiety of the occasion. And for this, all the suffrage societies, militant and constitutional, pooled their efforts. The WSPU and the NUWSS also opened shops in high streets up and down the country. The, the WSPU shops were particularly notable, displaying in their windows the posters and an increasing array of goods, tea, soap, china, bags, buckles, belts, brooches, all bearing the slogan, Votes for Women. Many of these items are now held in the Museum of London Collection. It can be, be seen in the display of uh, suffra suffragette material and also in the special uh, exhibition that's been organised. And then uh, periods of calm alternated with increasing militancy. The WSPU encouraged its members to demonstrate in whatever ways they thought would most attract attention. And there was a hot-headed element that discovered they could achieve the result, this result by setting out to attack property and then by ensuring that when they were arrested, they refused to pay a fine in order to go to prison. And the WSPU derived as much publicity as it could from the martyrdom of its prisoners. 
1909, one such prisoner uh, took this system of protest a stage further by hunger striking until the authorities felt compelled to release her. This tactic was adopted by other prisoners and became a byword for the suffrage campaign. And to honor such hunger strikers, the WSPU presented them with medals, which were akin to a military decoration. In fact, the idea of the WSPU as an army was a common metaphor. And it's ironic that what was called the physical force argument uh, was regularly produced by the anti-suffragists to justify refusing women the vote. That is, uh, women weren't worthy to be full citizens because as weak and feeble women, they couldn't join the army to defend the country. And yet, here were women putting themselves through extreme physical hardship in order to try and force the government to give them the vote. By the end of 1911, the government, rather than uh, releasing hunger-striking prisoners, was subjecting them to forcible feeding. The woman was held down while a tube was inserted down her throat and some kind of liquid food was poured down. And uh, the prisoners suffered abrasions to their throats, had teeth knocked if they struggled, and in the most severe cases suffered pleurisy uh, when the fluid was poured into a lung rather than stomach. That the government was prepared to treat women in this way provided the WSPU with powerfully, a powerfully emotive weapon. As a retaliation uh, for further broken promises from the government, in November 1911 and March 1912, hundreds of WSPU members went on an organized window smashing campaign through central London, attacking shops and offices. And then one sentenced uh, um, uh, the women, and there were around 200 of them, went on a mass hunger strike with many being forcibly fed. And after the March 1912 incident, uh, the leaders of the WSPU, that is Mrs. Pankhurst and Emmeline and Frederick Pethick Lawrence were arrested on a charge of conspiracy. Uh, Christabel escaped the police net and traveled to France from where she continued to conduct the WSPU campaign. Um, and after the Pethick Lawrences were eventually released uh, from prison in the autumn of 1912, and they made clear that they no longer thought that this level of militancy uh, was politically expedient. Anyway, they were told by Emily and Christabel Pankhurst that they were no longer welcome in the WSPU. And at about the same time, um, Mrs. Pankhurst's younger daughter, Sylvia, was also expelled from the WSPU. Her main concern was to look after the interests of working class women, thinking the best way to bring pressure on the government was to mobilize the East End masses. As for the NUWSS, since the beginning of the century, its membership had expanded dramatically. It definitely benefited uh, from the publicity created by the WSPU uh, because many women became interested in the cause, but uh, nevertheless, they didn't want to break the law. And the new NUWSS was extremely well managed. By 1914, it had over 50,000 members and over 500 local societies. And these were incorporated into a very efficient federated structure. There were branches of its uh, suffrage societies in most localities, from Wick in the north of Scotland to Falmouth in Cornwall. And it employed scores of organizers, young women, often university graduates, who traveled around the country, educating the public in the arguments for giving women the vote. And then new WSS finances were extremely well managed. And Mrs. Fawcett calculated that by 1914, the NUWSS was expending um, around about £45,000 a year, which would be something over £4 million in today's money, just to win the vote for women. 
In the summer of 1913, at a time when the WSPU's campaign of violent damage to property, um, that was arson and bombing, was escalating, the NUWSS um, organized its antithesis, a woman's suffrage pilgrimage, being the idea being that uh, members of its various federations would walk uh, to London holding meetings as they, they went, um, stressing all the while that the NUWSS was non-militant and was a law-abiding organization in order to distance themselves from the WSPU. The main routes uh, ran from Newcastle, Carlisle, Land's End and Kent, and there were tributaries uh, feeding into them. Although not all that many women marched all the way, uh, on each of the routes their numbers were bolstered by mem many members of local societies who joined them on short uh, stretches of the route. And the pilgrims collected around about 46,000 signatures to a suffrage petition. And uh, the final rally in Hyde Park was attended by around 50,000 people. So it was a, it was a popular campaign. But um, although it did get some press coverage, and Asquith noted that it, and this is, uh, you know, that it had a special claim on this consideration, contrasting it with the actions of the WSPU's militants, but even this public show of dedication was not going to win over the government and was anyway generally overshadowed by the drama a month earlier when a WSPU activist, Emily Wilding Davison, dashed onto the uh, race course um, while the derby was being run. And she died on the 8th of June. And on the 14th, the WSPU staged a magnificent procession to accompany her coffin through London. Uh, WSPU militancy had been increasing dramatically since February 1913, when Mrs. Pankhurst was arrested and uh, was um, tried and imprisoned. She'd been charged uh, uh, with conspiracy for bombing a house that Lloyd George was having built uh, in Surrey. And in April, the government had introduced uh, what was called the Cat and Mouse Act, by which hunger strikers were released from prison for a short time to recover their health and were then returned or were supposed to return to carry on with their sentence, thereby um, doing away with the unpleasant necessity of forcibly feeding them. Needless to say, many of the mice didn't return to prison when they were supposed to. And these women now sort of uh, were uh, beyond the law and lived a, a kind of underground existence, becoming in increasingly involved in um, progressively dangerous uh, acts of terrorism, such as setting fire to and placing bombs in railway uh, carriages, railway buildings, uh, churches, empty houses, and attacking paintings in art galleries. Many of the demonstrations in the years leading up to the First World War were prompted by the breaking of a government promise, a promise from the government, or the perception of a promise. Three women's suffrage bills were put before Parliament in 1910, 1911, and 1912, but all failed. The NUWSS certainly felt that the actions of the WSPU did nothing to help the situation. Millicent Fawcett wrote that at the time when the 1912, it was called the Conciliation Bill because all parties had agreed to it, and it was put before Parliament, and Millicent said, the continued violence of the militants caused intense irritation and resentment among the general public and afforded an excuse to those MPs who had promised their support in, to our movement to break their word. 
After the defeat of that conciliation bill, the NUWSS began negotiations with the Labour Party, the only party that had made women's suffrage part of its programme. After the general election of uh, December 1910, Labour, with, together with the Irish Parliamentary Party, held the balance of power in the House of Commons. And uh, so the NUWSS devised a plan to raise funds to support Labour candidates at uh, elections, hoping to make a dent in the Liberal majority. Now, this was a, a politically sophisticated strategy, but one that clearly needed time to develop. And the outbreak of war in 1914 uh, brought an end to this aspect of the campaign. However, even though there was no general election uh, in the immediate um, future, during the war years, the Liberals were well aware uh, that women's suffrage was Labour policy and that they had the backing of the well-organised and numerous NUWSS. In those last couple of years uh, before the war, it became obvious that votes for women was not at the top of the government's agenda. Irish home rule, however, was. And because the Liberal government had only a small majority, the Irish Parliamentary Party was able to ensure the defeat of the 1912 conciliation bill, uh, worried that any change in the electorate would, it, would interfere with their plans for home rule. So through 1913 and 1914, the government was increasingly concerned with the threat of insurrection in Ulster and not with the claims of women. The WSPU was incensed that the King agreed to, to host a conference at Buckingham Palace to discuss the Irish problem. If the Irish could get attention, why shouldn't the women? So on the 21st of May 1914, the WSPU set out for Buckingham Palace to take a petition to the King. Uh, a riot ensued, and after this, the police began seriously to clamp down on the WSPU. They raided their central London offices, and, uh, and they closed it, and uh, WSPU organisers were forced to keep on the move. And Christabel's um, deputy, because um, Christabel was still in Paris, uh, but uh, her deputy was arrested and kept in prison, and she was on hunger strike and was forcibly fed from then, so that's from May and until after the outbreak of war in August. The prison authorities had by now mastered the art of forcibly feeding prisoners without causing enough damage to necessitate uh, release under the Cat and Mouse Act. The outbreak of war in 1914 took the suffrage societies by surprise, as it did the rest of the country, the majority responded by putting an end to active campaigning. Mrs. Pankhurst um, actually waited until suffragette prisoners had been released under an amnesty. I mean, they promised that they wouldn't carry on uh, with their uh, militancy uh, now that war had broken out. And, um, but after all the prisoners were released, she sent out this letter um, to WSPU members. I mean, you won't be able to read it, but anyway, just show <laughs> that there was a letter. Uh, saying that uh, the work for the vote was now futile, but suggesting that at the end of the war, the work would recommence. The president of the new Constitutional Society for Women's Suffrage wrote a similar letter uh, to her members, and in it she wrote, in the present crisis there will be uh, one desire among suffragists, namely that laying aside for the time being the difference that divide, we should use all our energies for work for the common good. Or, as Mrs. Fawcett put it in a letter to her members, let us show ourselves worthy of citizenship, whether our claim 
claim to it be recognized or not. For there was a quick uh, uh, recognition that by proving their worth in wartime, women could only help their campaign. For instance, when Dr. Louisa Garrett, Louisa Garrett Anderson went over to Paris to set up a military hospital there, her mother, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who uh, applauded and she wrote, if you succeed, you will put the cause forward a hundred years. Many of the pre-war suffrage societies remained in existence, with the NUWSS continuing to publish their paper, The Common Cause, and the Women's Freedom League uh, continued to publish theirs. It was called The Vote. Led by uh, Millicent Fawcett, the NUWSS maintained its um, structure and supported the war effort while keeping a metaphorical ear to the political ground. Um, the large London Society of the NUWSS quickly set a bureau uh, to provide women with information on opportunities um, of employment that had previously been the reserve of men. And throughout the country, NUWSS societies provided hospitality for the floods of Belgian refugees. They also set up maternity centres, baby clinics, and schools for mothers. And 45 NUWSS societies became Red Cross centres. Others ran canteens for soldiers uh, on railway stations, and most importantly, supported the Scottish Women's Hospitals for Foreign Service, sending hospital units not only to the Western Front, but to Serbia, Salonika, Malta, and Russia. However, the war did create its own ideological differences, and these, in 1915, they led to a split in the NUWSS uh, between those who were pro and those anti-war, with militant force at ensuring that the NUWSS executive was soon purged of the latter element. I mean, there was um, a, a section that wanted to, uh, uh, to uh, campaign for, for a peaceful settlement. Unlike the NUWSS, the WSPU, to all intents and purposes, disbanded, and uh, the Pankhurst substituted um, extreme patriotic endeavour uh, for suffrage agitation. However, although many members didn't agree with the direction now taken by the Pankhurst, they also disagreed amongst themselves. There were always splits and fights in these societies, and they formed two new so separate organisations, so, um, but they didn't have uh, much political clout. Although, as an organisation, the WSPU didn't really play any formal part in the war effort, as individuals, many of its former members most certainly did, because working closely with Lloyd George, who was now Minister of Munitions, um, Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, together with Annie Kenny and another of their rather uh, colourful uh, leaders, personalities, uh, General Flora Drummond, they appeared at recruiting rallies at uh, towns and cities around the country. And in July 1915, they organised the Right to Serve March, which was a rather pale echo of the um, pre-war suffrage grand processions. But for this, Lloyd George had given them £2,000 to stage it. And uh, this time they were, instead of demanding the vote, women demanded the right uh, to, to work in uh, fa factories, particularly munition factories. In fact, it's estimated that Lloyd George gave the Pankhurst another £15,000 to mount a campaign to combat dissension um, in industry um, to prevent strike actions. 
and to minimize uh, the influence of trade unions and left-wing uh, activists. There's no doubt that the Pankhurst and their followers were very much more bellicose than the NUWSS. Uh, they disparaged men who weren't fighting uh, and, of course, had the vote, contrasting them with the nationalistic women who didn't. And in June 1917, Lloyd George even sent Emmeline Pankhurst to Russia to encourage Russian women uh, to lobby uh, to keep their country in the war. In fact, she was in Russia when uh, the Women's Clause of the Representation of the People Bill was debated in Parliament. Women who had been uh, members of the WSPU were among those who took the opportunity the war offered to start new organizations. For instance, the Women's Police Volunteers was co-founded by Mary Allen, an ex-hunger-striking suffragette, and the Women's Emergency Corps by Evelina Haverfield, another WSPU activist. Uh, the military hospital that mentioned uh, um, that uh, Dr. Louisa Garrison, Garrett Anderson uh, with her uh, companion, Dr. Flora Murray, opened in Paris. It soon moved back to London um, when the government realised that they could deal with a hospital run by women. And it was more or less the first hospital in which male patients uh, were treated by female staff. It was in Endall Street in Covent Garden. As well as uh, joining organisations formed by erstwhile suffrage activists, women who had never given any overt support to the suffrage campaign offered themselves in great numbers. Um, for instance, around 34,000 um, were members of the voluntary aid detachments, which we know colloquially as VADs. And of course, um, they worked in the munition factories. By 1917, women were accorded um, the right to form an integral part of the official war machine, with the War Office admitting the need for women's services to run in parallel with the Army, Navy and Air Force, allowing for the formation of uh, the, the women's organisations that we might recognise, um, such as the Wrens and the RAF. And on the home front, where the men off to the war, uh, women took over their jobs, becoming, for instance, bus conductors, postwomen, window cleaners, factory and agricultural workers. So in just two or three years, the position of women had dramatically altered. But although after 1914, individual women saw a very great change in their social and economic circumstances, rather ironically, nothing changed politically until the government realized it had to deal with a new problem concerning votes for men. For many men who had lost their right to, had lost their right to vote, uh, no longer um, meeting the residential requirements that were uh, necessary um, because they had spent time abroad fighting with their country. And there were many men now out in the trenches who hadn't qualified as voters before the war. In fact, uh, there were about 40% of men before the war didn't have the vote. The government made it known that it didn't feel able to deny these men the prospect of a vote. And in June 1916, the Constitutional Societies responded by uh, stating that if the government intended to extend the male franchise, then a campaign for women's suffrage would be resumed. They didn't mean that it was going to be militancy, I mean, like the WSPU, which was no longer active, but they would be lobbying. Um, and it's um, indicative of just how far Mrs. Pankhurst had distanced herself from the WSPU, uh, the pre-war WSPU, because at this point, she stated that she would be in favour of soldiers and sailors getting the vote, even if women continued to be excluded. 
In the event, Parliament decided to set up an all-party committee to discuss possible changes to the electoral register. It was chaired by the speaker, it was called Willoughby Dickinson, and he, in 1907, as a private member, he'd introduced a women's suffrage bill, so he, he was a, a pro, pro the cause. In January 1917, this was called the Speaker's Conference, reported that it decided, not unanimously, uh, but by a majority, that some women should be granted a measure of enfranchisement. The one proviso that uh, wasn't settled was what age should the women be? For the conference wasn't prepared to grant the vote to women on exactly the same terms as men. The NUWSS, together with other suffrage societies, had lobbied MPs behind the scenes, and having won the vote in principle, Mrs. Fawcett was prepared to drop the demand for complete equality in order to get some measure passed by Parliament. As she commented in May 1917, during a deputation to the Prime Minister, who is now Lloyd George, we should greatly prefer an imperfect scheme that can pass to the most perfect scheme in the world that could not pass. Very sensible woman. Asquith assured the deputation of his sympathy with their demands. Although there were years of disappointment to make suffragists wary of such a claim, a couple of months later, they were able to take strength from a good omen because Parliament voted to remove the grill that caged women in the ladies' gallery. And then when the women's suffrage bill was debated in the House, it became clear that for the very first time, such a measure had government support. During the bill's passing uh, through Parliament, nearly every MP was approached by a deputation from his own constituency and letters poured into the House of Commons from all suffrage societies. The result was that um, by uh, the terms of Clause 4 of the Representation of the People Act, um, which was given the Royal Centre Course on the 6th of February 1918, women over the age of 30 were granted the parliamentary vote. Not all women over 30, uh, however, because either she or her husband, if she had one, had to occupy a house or land a premises valued at no less than £5. Now, this wasn't a very onerous qualification, but it was one that did disenfranchise about 22% of women who, who were, would have been eligible by age. As one very active member of the Women's Social and Political Union, uh, a woman called Lillian Lenton, commented rather ruefully, personally, I didn't vote for a very long time because I hadn't either a husband or furniture, although I was over 30. The lack of furniture referred to the fact that her low income obliged her to live in a low-rent furnished room. In addition, women graduates, including those who'd studied in Oxford and Cambridge, who were, of course, still refused um, degrees, they were still eligible uh, for the university constituency vote. I mean, an anomaly, uh, plural voting, was only abolished in 1950. And reflecting the fact that the war wasn't yet over, women serving abroad in the Royal in the Red Cross or with the, uh, the WAC were entitled to vote even though they were not resident in their usual constituency. They had, of course, to be over 30, while the voting age for men on active service was actually lowered to 19. In the event, at the general election, uh, around um, 3,000 women took advantage of this particular provision. In uh, Uh, NUWSS victory celebration was held in the Queen's Hall, which was just a uh, broadcasting house near there. 
stands in Langham Place on the 13th of March, 1918, with Mrs. Fawcett in the chair and her longtime friend, Sir Hubert Parry, conducting his Jerusalem. Afterwards, he said he hoped the peace would come, the women voters him, and he assigned copyright to the NUWSS. Now, the Women's Party, which uh, was an organization launched by the Pankhurst in 1917, held a patriotic meeting and celebration in the Royal Albert Hall three days later. Now, the Women's Party combined a bellicose, xenophobic stance with a series of progressive proposals. For instance, they campaigned against the unions, but for shorter working hours and better conditions, for equal pay, equal marriage and divorce laws, and for national health and education, and for state-subsidized housing. The aim really was for everybody to be middle class and for the working class to be abolished. In general, suffrage campaigners, both suffragists and suffragettes, didn't criticize the decision to accept the partial, partial enfranchisement, recognizing that as it happened in Norway before the war, the discriminating qualification could not be upheld for long. With Britain still at war, uh, the response to the suffrage victory was perhaps a little more muted than one might have expected. Uh, the general atmosphere conveyed by uh, the Common Cause, the NUWSS paper, was very much one of business as usual. They may move straight on, discuss, for instance, the necessity to repeal the hated Defence of the Realm Act, which had particular provisions that affected uh, lives of women or some women. And uh, they were keen to reform women's prisons and to discuss the relationship between women and the judicial system. And then there was a problem of the nationality of married women and whether or not the payment of family allowances was a good idea. So they were very practical. And as the war drew to a close, there was a discussion um, about the problems that would arise from the demobilization of women workers. And of course, their remit now was to uh, enable women to make use of their new political legitimacy. And uh, by to do this, they published pamphlets to guide them through the complexity of getting onto the voting register and using their vote. And then, on the 21st of November 1918, which was just 10 days after the end of the war, a bill to allow women to stand as MPs was rushed through Parliament, meeting with virtually no resistance in the House of Commons. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. It's an extraordinary act, because it's called the Parliament Qualification of Women Act, and uh, it introduced an interesting anomaly. Women were able to stand as MPs when they were 21, although they couldn't have voted for themselves. <laughs> The first general election that allowed women both to vote and to stand for election took place in December 1918, and it's been estimated that in the final week before polling, the popular press was so excited by the novelty of women voters and women candidates that between one quarter and one third of the election coverage was devoted to women's issues. However, having only just acquired the right to stand, women candidates had only about three weeks to prepare their campaigns. And um, there were 17 women candidates that stood, and Christabel Pankhurst was among them, standing on the um, Women's Party platform. As a reward for fighting what uh, Lloyd George termed the Bolshevik and pacifist element, she was given the coveted coupon of uh, coalition endorsement. But even with this backing, she was defeated and never repeated the experience. She bowed out of politics and uh, took up seven day of second 
the second coming. <laughs> um, the only woman to be successful at this election was an Irish woman, Constance Markovich, um, but she was a, a member of Sinn Féin and was actually at that time interned in Holloway, so she never took her seat. And a year later, in uh, November 1919, an American, Nancy Lady Astor, became the first woman MP elected at a Plymouth by-election. Um, it had been her husband's seat, but he'd been bounced up to the House of Lords on the death of his father, so she stepped in. The Women's uh, Party ceased to exist by the end of 1919, but the NUWSS, which was now renamed the National Society for Equal Citizenship, continued lobbying throughout the 1920s. Millicent Fawcett continued to speak and write on behalf of the society until March 1928, after 62 years of campaigning, the vote was given to all women on the same terms as it was given to men. Millicent, um, she'd been created a DBE uh, in 1925, was actually in Parliament to see the act passed, and she wrote in her diary that night, it's almost 61 years ago since I heard John Stuart Mill introduce his suffrage amendment to the Reform Bill on the 20th of May, 1867, so I have had extraordinary good luck to having seen the struggle from the beginning. Now, it's often suggested that the war, it was the war that won the vote for women, Although, of course, the majority of women war workers who tended to be young were excluded from the extended franchise. However, I don't think it was so much uh, that war work was the winning argument, um, but rather that it disarmed the opposition. War work was the excuse, not the reason. I'd suggest that without the campaigning that took place in the 50 years before 1914, women would have been in no position to take part in the war effort as they did, the idea of what a woman, what women could do or be, uh, had undergone a, gone a very real uh, change during that time. Much of it as a byproduct of the pioneering efforts of the women who were also campaigning for a change in the franchise. Similarly, there is much debate as to whether it was the militant or the constitutional campaign that resulted in votes for women. My feeling is that the constitutional campaign would have achieved this political goal, whereas there was no chance of the government acquiescing to threats from bombers and arsonists. However, there's no doubt the WSPU did garner a great deal of publicity for the cause, for good or ill. The changes in society brought about by the war offered a smokescreen to those in government who had so vehemently opposed votes for women, Mrs Asquith, behind it they could change their minds. That is, they could say they were granting women this right because by actively supporting uh, in their country in its time of need, they had proved themselves worthy citizens. But it was the persistent campaigning of the previous half century that created the circumstances that made such a political uh, change possible at last. <laughs>